to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spaciano, joined, as always, by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? Well, Dan, this, despite the kind words and encouragement, a push even, if you will, from Jim Cornette, we still haven't crashed the top ten in Malta. That's the bad news. The good news is we're still, we still have the French connection going. We're still charting in France. Well, we've got, we've got Malta to shoot for and... He, he also said we, we might be able to hope for Bolivia and the mountains in Tibet. So not the valley. Too many people down there. Too many, yeah, exactly. I enjoyed that interview by or that uh, plug that he did, by the way. <laughs> we did, too. Well, well since since, uh, since we've got another voice on the line with us, Benny, why don't you tell everybody who we got with us tonight? Yes, sir. Well, our esteemed guest will be making his fifth appearance on Dan and Benny in the Ring. If, you know, if, if, if he keeps coming on, we might have to change the title of our podcast. Um, he's the author of the fabulous book, Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling, from Vern Gagne to the Road Warriors. And tonight, we'll be talking about a subject that is near and dear to just about everybody, which is money. And I'm very happy to welcome back George Shire to Dan and Benny in the Ring. George, welcome. Hey, guys. Always fun. You said it's number five. I don't keep count, but it's always fun. You guys, I love having the fun we do together. So thanks for having me back. Oh, yeah. Well, we appreciate it. You're always... Uh... Always fun to talk to you, George. Well, you're Benny, very the, kind. You're welcome. Benny, the money idea was was yours. Uh, what are you thinking? Well, the first question really isn't money per se, but uh, I made the mistake, which I promised myself I wouldn't do, but I did. I got sucked into a Facebook debate. Somebody posted a newspaper article about the, uh, the Pat O'Connor-Buddy Rogers match in Comiskey Park. And was it 59, George? Or what year was uh, that? 1961. 61, okay. That drew an excess yeah, of 30,000 people. Yeah, won the title. Gotcha. Well, uh, and then I made the sarcastic comment about Vince McMahon being the one who t- took wrestling out of the bingo halls. And somebody made the comment that uh, by taking it national, he actually increased viewership overall. And I, I don't know, you know, it's something that I never really thought of. But then I started thinking about, did did McMahon's national viewership actually exceed the, you know, if you took the sum total of all the territories and all their local TV viewership, did, did he really, did he really increase it? The simplest answer is no. The thing is, and, and let's go back to your comment that got you into trouble. Wrestling was taken out of the bingo halls by a little thing called television back in the very late 40s when it was in its infancy. It was so weird, you guys, because growing up as I did and Benny, I think you did in that era, this 50s, 60s, not every family in town had a TV. It was rare. It was expensive. It was a luxury. A lot of families couldn't afford them. And so the wrestling promoters 
and the TV stations got together because in a money aspect, the television stations realized that uh, wrestling was easy to produce. They just put a ring in their studio and have the wrestlers come in and, and the, you know, the sponsors would come forward for the television show and, and it was easy to do. So it wasn't the anything like took it out of the, uh, the alleys, like you said, the bingo halls. It was all about television. That once people had television, it was going in all the living rooms around the country. And those families that didn't have them, department stores in the towns used to actually put TVs in their windows when right. wrestling came on. And that's a true fact. The people in a certain block, any wrestling fan will tell you, we'd gather together to the third house on the corner because they had a TV and we watched wrestling. And so that's really what did it. it it brought that national exposure so that the promoters could go to the bigger arenas, whether it be a National Guard Armory or a big municipal auditorium, that sort of thing. So there's your viewership. And as far as it getting older and older through the year or younger and younger through the years, fans watch television all the time with 30, what, 30 territories at any given time. Wrestling was literally on television just about every single night of the week in every city around the country. And we'll just use the United States. And that doesn't count the, the foreign countries. So whether or not the viewership was, you know, as large when McMahon went national, I would highly doubt it. Highly. Well, I think to to put in perspective, the uh, – I'm trying to remember the year they were. They had quoted uh, one of the books about. I uh, was reading about Memphis. Rem said the conservative estimate for all the combined territories at the peak of wrestling was about 30 million people a week watching watching the show. The highest rated ever episode of Monday Night Raw was eight million people. Right. So, you know, you're you're talking. And, and you know, the, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. You know, well, the thing is that. It, it still goes down when you look at today's wrestling. The fans have a limited choice. They've got Monday Night Raw. They've got, what is is it Friday Night SmackDown? I don't watch it anymore. I think it's Friday Night. Friday And then you've Smackdown got the, the smaller, you know, the smaller independent wrestling companies out there are the big the next biggest ones, AEW and I think Ring of Honor, whatever is left. I don't follow it. But the fans can't watch wrestling on television every night anymore unless they're doing it on their their uh, vcr recorders and their old tapes that they're watching or something like that but in the territory days you have to realize that there was wrestling in every major city in the united states all these territories could put on their show and if we looked at the AWA or, or Minneapolis in the 50s, which was NWA, and then Minneapolis in the 60s, 70s, which became AWA, they had a wrestling show on every week, sometimes twice in the same town. And then they would ship these tapes out to all their various towns, and they had a weekly wrestling show. And they were all on different nights of the week. So you could go around the country and wrestling was on TV as much as I Love Lucy was. Nice. Well, phase know, one of your question, Benny. Yeah, no, good answer. Yeah, that's a great answer. And that actually transitions the, the question I was going to ask. Um, you said there were enough territories and enough. I mean, we've talked 
<clears throat> Georgia in the past having you on the show, the territories, they were all around the country. So my question is, how did the wrestler get from one territory to the next? And, and I don't mean, you know, by car, plane. I mean, did, did the promoters reach out to the talent? Did the talent go to the territories and try and promote themselves? Uh, how, how did that work? Like if, if I'm truth. running a territory in, in Memphis, how do I find out about a guy that wrestles in Montana that I want? In the truest sense of the word, and wrestlers would have told you this from the old school, they were independent contractors. A wrestler worked entirely as a self-employed individual. And it was up to him, and we're not going to touch on lady wrestling or anything at this point. We're just going to stick with the guys for the, because that was the majority of the business, okay? A, a wrestler needed to self-promote a lot. But let's start with the territories, for example. When you had, as they grew through the decades, we had 20, 25, 30 different territories. You guys have heard me talk in the past about how each territory would have their mainstay wrestlers. These were maybe the three, four, five guys that were the constant in the territory, sometimes made up of a promoter that, you know, was a wrestler that ran the territory or owned it. But the mainstays were the guys that all the stories were built around, all of the angles were built around, and for the most part, any new talent that would come into the territory would eventually be into a program with one of these four or five guys. It was just the way every territory was run. So also back in the day, and this is something that a lot of people don't realize. Yes, wrestling today still has a lot of little tiny independent cards going around and these wannabe wrestlers. I want it understood that I respect any guy who puts on a pair of boots and pair of tights and gets in the ring, regardless of what his level of, of expertise is. But all of these little indie cards these guys are making, no money, there's no place for them to go, and they're little cards because McMahon, for the most part, and along with the other couple that we mentioned, they run the whole thing. So what you have to look at is that in the territory days, there were probably 3,000 wrestlers, guys that made money, the big money, the, the main event money. And then you had just a slew of guys that filled the cards underneath, the supporting staff, so to, so to speak, the opening guys, the TV guys, um, you know, the jobbers, as they were called. I mean, we had wrestlers all over the place and they had to sell, promote and to make money many times. A promoter and uh, Dan or Benny, you and I talked about this. Let's just talk about Vern Gagne for a second. Vern Gagne says, I want to bring in Nick Bockwinkel. He reaches out to Nick Bockwinkel. Vern and Wally Carbo, they reached out to Nick Bockwinkel. Not once, but a couple of times. As it was with Nick's travel, Nick's schedule, he wasn't able to come in when they wanted him to, but they were pulling to get him in for a couple of reasons. And this is where it was really important. When you had all these guys that were traveling around to all these cities, all these territories, some even to foreign countries, word of mouth was really good. So eventually with Nick Bockwinkel, we know he came in. And in his instance, it was at Vern and Wally's invitation 
because Vern knew Warren Bockwinkle years earlier, uh, Nikki's dad, and he knew of Nick's reputation. And Nick was at the point in his career where he was the uh, the perfect heel that Vern wanted, and he brought him in. And Nick ended up being one of our mainstays. Vern sort of just brought him in. They were friends, and Nick stayed with him. Now let's talk about how the guys make this happen. A lot of times it's by endorsement. When Dick Beyer, who everybody knew was the world-famous destroyer in most territories, he was Dr. X masked here in AWA. He had went to Hawaii. He was taken off to Japan. And in Hawaii, he hooked up with Billy Robinson. And Dick Beyer told Billy, he said, you should contact Vern Gagne. You're the kind of a wrestler that Vern could use. And Billy was new to the country at that point. I mean, he'd been wrestling in England really primarily for a long time. So he said, you should hook up with Vern. And Dick also called Vern and said, I got a guy for you. He's right up your alley. Because Vern loved wrestlers first. You know how many times I've said that. All the characters that are created in wrestling, Vern says, I want you to wrestle first. And if you need to be a clown, we'll make you a clown. But wrestling first. So Billy was perfect. Well, Vern had come through Hawaii along with, actually it was with Nick Bockwinkle and Don Morocco, a couple of these other guys that were there. And Nick saw Billy and there it was. Billy, come on in. I want you to come in to me. You know, this is perfect. Billy came. So those are two instances with Nick and Billy where one reached out, Vern reached out to Nick, and in the case of Dick Beyer recommending Billy, he got in. But the other way these wrestlers um, put themselves over to get into a territory is because of these mainstays in every territory that they would go to, these four or five guys that technically were there for the whole 10, 12, 20, 30 years, whatever the promotion was around, these guys had to move around. So generally speaking, a wrestler would come into a territory for six months to a year to two years, maybe more sometimes, but sometimes less. But that was the general time frame. And the idea was, is they're going to come in, they're going to get their push or whatever they're going to be promised by the promotion or however they're going to be used or however they get over. Sometimes the fan just, you know, fans bought into them and they could make money. So they would come in. But by the time that, let's just say, two-year frame time, time frame was up, now it's time to move on. And they don't want to get stale. Or maybe their character got old. Maybe they want to change characters. So they contact another promoter or another wrestler recommends them. And they get in their car, pack their family up, and take off. Most of the wrestlers that we had going around the country, if you look at the the cards through the decades, you'll see that virtually every one of these wrestlers at one time or another hit just about every territory in the country. There are exceptions, but for the most part. So Stevens, Ray Stevens was in California. He was in Atlanta. He was in Florida. He was in Texas. New York. He ended up York. in the AWA. Mm-hmm. That's how it worked. Mm-hmm. And any other wrestler could have the same type of story. And 
once they go to a new territory, they can either start a new character. Now, a lot of it depended on how they got along in the territory. There were wrestlers that couldn't get along with the promoter, or there were wrestlers that the promoter didn't like. He didn't like the way they did a match, or they worked an angle, or, you know, like in any business, you're going to have, let's just call the wrestlers being employees for the time they're with a, a, a promotion. Just like with a company, you're going to have employees that you got to move on because they're not building the, the business the way you want them to. And a lot of it came down to that drawing power. And, of course, we all know there are some wrestlers that could just go around the country and write their own ticket because they were so good. And then there were guys like the Crusher who was so good. I'm going to throw Larry Hennig in there, too. They were so good at drawing power. They were so good at bringing in the fans, but they didn't want to leave. They were satisfied staying in the smaller, you know, in just one territory after they'd gotten established. And again, that was a personal choice. So they made a lot of money and they didn't have to travel. But in most cases, it was all about self-promotion. And sometimes, um, another promoter would recommend a wrestler. Eddie Graham would call up Vern Gagne and say, hey, I got this guy down here. You know, I don't know what to do with him or he needs some experience. Can I have him come up and work with your guys? And vice versa. Vern would throw a lot of his rookies out there after he'd bring them in and have them work his matches for about five, six, seven months in his territory. He'd want to send them out on the road to gain experience. And a lot of times, that experience pays off in return for Vern because the guy may come back later on, maybe in a different character. If not, he's still definitely improved from when Vern sent him away. And I guess if I was to use an example of that, and I could come up with many, but uh, because it's his birthday today, I'm going to say Larry Hainemi, Lars Anderson. Lars Anderson, yeah. Larry Hainimi was trained by Vern, worked for Vern for a year and a half in AWA, took off with Gene Anderson. They became brothers down in the South, carved out a history that is phenomenal still today as the Minnesota Wrecking Crew. But when Lars was done there, he wanted to come back home. He came to Vern. He's now Lars Anderson. He's bigger, tougher, more arrogant, polished, good on the interviews, Made a great partner for Larry Hennig, and for three years, we had such a great tag team. So that was one of those examples where Lars came back. And that's really the way it worked. So now I've said all that. If you got a question more uh, about that, go ahead and ask. No, that, that, that was no, perfect. That, that was um, so I, I do have a hypothetical example, and this is something a little bit different. So I'm going to use the name Burhead Jones, which for only the reason that I like that name, Burhead Jones, and just assume he goes to work for Vern Gagne. Is there any okay. paperwork involved? I mean, what, what does he sign something when he gets there? Is there a time frame? Is there a guarantee? What, what all happens when he comes into the territory? Well, to answer your first question, there was no in the back in the day. I'm not talking about today now. Back in the day, uh, there was no paperwork, no uh, application, nothing. It was all done with the old handshake. handshake. Without the hot and it, it was an agreement. You know, the best example that I can explain on that one for you, and, and I know you used Burhead Jones, and folks, there really was a Burhead Jones, yes. and he was a great, <laughs> great worker. He had he had a, a fun career, but knowing, knowing, let me tell you how. I, let me no, knowing tell you how. Ben, I, 
Sorry, go ahead. Let me tell you how it worked with, we mentioned Dick Byer. Vern Gagne wrestled the Destroyer in Chicago. The Destroyer was working for Dick the Bruiser's WWA group in Indianapolis. The irony about Chicago back in the day was that Vern and Dick the Bruiser, who owned WWA, Vern owned the AWA, they owned Chicago together, just the city of Chicago. So Chicago's amphitheater would get these mega cards with a combination of Bruiser's guys at the time and Vern's guys at the time. So if you were a Chicago fan, you had some really cool matchups. Sometimes you'd see guys that the AWA never got and vice versa. So Bruiser had the destroyer working for him with his mask, the whole bit. Dick Byer, the destroyer. And Vern, he earned a title match with uh, Vern in Chicago. And um, after the match, Vern contacted or talked to Dick later on. He says, I want to meet you. And believe it or not, they met at the Playboy Club in Chicago, downtown Chicago at the time. They're going there just for drinks, guys. That's a joke. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. I'll coax you when to, when to laugh. But they did. They went to the Playboy Club, and Vern wanted Dick to come into the AWA because he was impressed with him. And you got to remember, the Destroyer was a wrestler first. Dick Byer was a phenomenal worker. He he was he was a hook he was a hooker. He he could win. He was real, and he could beat you if you didn't want to be beat and you wanted to make it real. Dick could make it happen. That's just the way it was. So Vern wanted Dick to come in. However. The story with Vern would be that when the destroyer was done, I'd want you to unmask. Dick said, no way. Dick had that power, that uh, ability, because that's the way he'd earned his money at that point in time. This was 67. He had been the destroyer since 62. So he had five years making this mask, making him money. And no promoter could talk him into taking it off on any angle or anything or when he was done with the territory. So Dick agreed. He said, you know what? I'd like to come in because everybody wanted to work in the AWA. And that's something we can talk about in depth if you want to, but everybody did. And Dick said, I'll come in, but I won't unmask. And Vern says, all right, let's do this. We'll create a new character. The destroyer won't come in. We'll create this whole new persona. Black mask, nose covered, you know, no open mouth like on the Destroyer's mask, a tunic top, long black tights, black boots. Totally opposite of the Destroyer, who was very colorful, white boots, matching trunks to whatever the trim was on his white mask that had open eyes and his big old schnoz hanging out, you know, and and the thing. And I say that kiddingly because I love Dick Byer. He's the greatest guy in the world, and I do miss him. But they created a whole different character. And it went over. And Dick, true to his form, when his he was there three years, and at the um, at about the thirty uh, the twenty seven month reign, he he started telling Vern he was going to be moving out soon. He wanted to leave and travel a little bit and and leave the territory for a while. So they agreed on on masking. But that's how that all worked out. It was all done with a handshake, with the idea that when you go. 
when Dick left, he had an open door to come back if he ever wanted to. And he did return a year and a half later after his world tour that he took as the destroyer. But it was all a handshake, no paper. And in most cases, when a wrestler would come into the territory, any territory, the promoter and the wrestler would agree on what that wrestler was going to do. I'm going to use you in the main events <coughs> based on what I know of you or, or what you can do. Or I'm going to, I want you just to be a mid card guy, or I want you to be an opening guy. It was up to the wrestler at that point to decide that at that point in his career, if that's what he wanted to do. Now, I'm going to say this because, and I think we'll probably touch on this a little more as we go along here. The AWA was always noted for being a one hell of a great pay territory during the 60s and the 70s and the early 80s. Any wrestler who went to the AWA always made money. And sometimes the guys in the middle of the card or the lower card were making as much as other guys in another territory that were working main events, depending on the size of the territory. So a lot of times to the guys, it didn't matter where they were on the card or whether they were the champion or whether they were getting a push. Because they had families and they, they were doing work, this was their job, they just wanted to be paid and paid well. And a lot of times the money was the most important thing. So I hope that answered your question, Benny. Yes, sir. Yeah, very much so. Uh, kind of going back to to money, uh, you you talked about getting well paid in the AWA. We've talked a lot through the last few years doing the show of the territories. And Vern Gagne's name always comes up as one of the promoters, at least I should say peak Vern Gagne, uh, as that was where you went to make money. And so I'm curious if we could kind of expand on that a little bit. Uh, we'll go back to the hypothetical, what, what Benny was talking about, Vern, you know, Burhead Jones working for Vern Gagne. Although let's be honest, Benny, we know your Burhead Jones has a baseball gimmick. <laughs> so he, he goes to work for, for Gagne. Like we were talking about in the last hypothetical, you said he makes a lot of money. Um, how often is he paid and in what method? I mean, is it every show? Is Vern giving him a check? Is it an envelope full of money at the end of the week? Like, how does that work? What you have to also realize, and we'll, we'll touch on Vern specifically, but again, along with that handshake and whatever verbal deal the, the promoter and the wrestler or wrestlers make, there's going to be a talk of what I'm going to make in the territory. Now, when we talk about pay territories, yes, Vern was one of the best pay territories. There were a lot of promoters that were known to be good payout guys and keeping their promise on what they told you you would come into the territory and make. Generally speaking, in most territories, the promoter could say to a wrestler, you will make X dollars, whatever that figure is, whether it be weekly or monthly, Normally, they'd be paid weekly or monthly, okay? You'd get a weekly, monthly paycheck, and you'd wrestle whatever number of cards. You, you knew that you were going to wrestle 10 times or, or whatever number of dates that you were going to get, and the wrestler would receive a payday. And generally speaking, it was the promised amount. Sometimes there were little bonuses that might have been stuck in there if there was an exceptionally good house or something really phenomenal happened, you know, maybe the wrestler would get a little bit more. 
The other side of it is, is that a lot of times with all of the traveling that the guys did, a lot of times when they would go to spot shows, you guys know what a spot show is? Yes, sir. The, the small mm-hmm. town? Okay, generally three matches on a card, sometimes four, but generally three. And they were in the smaller venues. They were in a gym, high school gymnasium, sometimes the local small town National Guard Armory, where they only could hold, uh, you know, maybe 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, if they were lucky, people. And the guys obviously weren't going to be paid a lot of money for those, but they would have they would go there to pick up extra bucks. And a lot of times in those towns, one of the wrestlers would be in charge of the money, the gate receipts, and the wrestlers might be paid right there on the spot. The funny thing is, is that in many instances, some of these guys were paid a lot in cash. So what happens is, is a lot of times these guys are making cash and, you know, then this is a whole different, their own business thing. But how are they taking care of their taxes? What are they reporting to Uncle Sam or not reporting? And, but it, it was run like anything else. You know, I've got a plumber who says he comes to the house, but he says, you know, just give, just give me cash. Then I'll have to count, you know, put it against the books. Well, okay, I don't care what you do, but I'm paying you what you're asking me. So that's the way it worked with a lot of the wrestlers. There were also a couple of promoters. I believe Bob Geigel was one of them. He would give you a check, pay you with your check, whatever you got for a certain card or a week or whatever he promised. And he would turn around and cash the check for you. So he'd give you the cash, but he'd have the check. I don't know how that worked on the accounting system, but that's the way they did it. But generally speaking, the wrestler knew with a verbal agreement that I will pay you X dollars for whatever your time is here, whether it be per match, per week, per month, and it would vary on different guys. There were guys that Vern would pay on a weekly, monthly basis. There were other guys that he'd pay by card. And the thing about the pay by card thing is he paid you to work tonight and you owe him nothing. You go home and there's no promise you're coming back sometimes. So it all depended on the individual. And the other thing about booking is when a wrestler came to a territory, a lot of times, yeah, you can come and work for me and we'll get out the booking sheets. And all of a sudden you may notice that the last two cards you're not booked on. Well, that may be your hint that maybe you're being phased out. There was never any real, you're fired, get out of here. The wrestler would decide, well, I'm going to go move on. I'm not making what I thought I could make here, or the promoter didn't come through. Now, I'll give you the reverse of this. A lot of times there were promoters that would make promises that I'm going to pay you this amount. This is what you'll make. Come and work for me. And then they wouldn't follow through on their promise. The days of the matches or the cards they were on, well, the house wasn't this big or the house was smaller or I had this expense and that expense and I can't pay you what I, you know. And again, you've got employee and and employer. Eventually, something's got to give. You know, if you don't like the way you're being treated because they were independent contractors, they can pack their little duffel bag with their boots and trunks and go to next town, next territory. So, it, it worked that way. Now, here was an example. There was one promoter, and I think he's long passed away, and 
But this is the truth. I can't tell you how many wrestlers I've heard over the years that said this guy wasn't always above board on what he was going to do. His name was Pedro Martinez, and he promoted around the Buffalo area. So in 1961, he wanted Nick Bockwinkle. Pedro Martinez wanted Nick Bockwinkle to come in and work for him. And in 1961, Nick had been in the business for about seven years, still working preliminaries. He had some main events here and there, but he was still learning the trade, which is a whole different thing, too, I'd point out. Most of the wrestlers that worked around the the 50s, 60s, 70s, and into the 80s, most of the time, in order to get to the top of any territory and be a main eventer, they had to work in the business for five or six or seven years, work in the preliminaries all over. They didn't just come out of the factory and be a nine foot built like a brick, you know, what house and become the superstar. They had to earn their place. So Nick gets contacted by Martinez. He gets into town and Martinez says, well, I don't want Nick Bachwinkle. I want, I want to create a new character. We're going to call you, you know, is it okay if I call you Roy Diamond? Nick says to him, because he'd had this reputation with with Martinez, and Nick said to him, he says, I don't care if you bill me as an asshole. Just pay me. Pay me, right. (laughs) True story. Okay, so I always teased, by the way, I always teased Nick on that. I said, you know, Nick, it would have really been fun if you would have went with the ass. Ladies and gentlemen, from Hollywood, California, 242 pounds, asshole in the corner, you know. But anyway, so Nick worked four cards for Pedro Martinez. He got paid for none of them. And he went into Martinez. Martinez had all kinds of excuses. I couldn't do this. I can't, well, I'll pay you next time. I'll, I'll bring it up. I'll be good to you. Nick says, screw you, buddy. And he left. Four matches. Roy Diamond's career was four matches. But that was an example where a promoter wasn't trustworthy. And there were others that had examples. Now, at the same token, there are promoters that have had a bad rep for not paying well. One of them just recently passed away. Bless his soul. And we'll just leave it at that. I mean, just within the last couple of weeks here. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't always noted to be the best payout guy or the best promise guy or even be in the best territory to pay. But because there were so many places for a wrestler to go, they didn't have to tolerate the guy that broke promises to them or didn't pay them what, you know, what they felt they were worth or they could just move on. And it was a revolving door all along. Then you had guys that would go to a territory and it was a poor paid territory or the promoter broke promises to everyone else. But maybe to this wrestler, he, he would, you know, his word was gold and. You know, so it's like anything else. There's someone that hates someone and someone else is saying, well, wait a minute, this guy always treated me fair. That's the way the wrestling business was. I'll stop and let you take a breath. <laughs> so, or let me so take a breath. I always got the impression got that the impression. their earnings were more variable than fixed. And I, I've seen a, a bunch seen of, a uh, of, I think, uh, Jim Cornetti <clears throat> Jim went through. He, keeps, he kept all his, his cards and everything. The, the actual payout sheet. And... I'm sure that was based. It was based on the on the on the gate. So, yes. Was was the was, was their compensation based on the gate with a, like maybe a a general guarantee? There were. Let's put it this way, Benny. 
there there were always wrestlers that had a guarantee that and again let's just use Vern. Vern would say Nick this is what you're going to pay this is what you're going to be paid and by hook or crook through the year Nick got that salary. Then there are other wrestlers where you're in the car, you're in the main event and we all know the story that when these guys were in the area, they had to promote themselves. The good guy had to make you love them and want to come and see them take care of some mean old buzzard that needs to be taught a lesson. And then that old buzzard needs to make you think, hey, I'm going to take this good guy and eliminate him from the scene and send him home to the to the hospital. So they had to sell themselves. And there were percentages of the gate. And a lot of times it depended on the type of show it was. So you mentioned earlier about the Buddy Rogers, Pat O'Connor, Comiskey Park 1961 title change. And they they had a, a record attendance at the ballpark that night, outdoor card. Um, it was over 30,000, which was a record at the time for a pro wrestling card. Pat O'Connor, for starters, as the NWA champion, had a guarantee maybe plus a percentage of what the gate was. That part I don't know. But he had a guarantee. He knew what he was going to make because he was their champion, and he, he could count on it. Buddy Rogers, he had a part of the gate, a percentage of the gate and probably a promise. It all depends on, on all the other factors. And so it was a little bit of both. I know when Nick Bockwinkel was AWA champion from 75 to 1980, now, this is, you got to remember the time period. This was 45 years ago now. Right. Nick was making about $250,000 a year, promise guaranteed. That's what he earned. He earned more than that a couple years, but that was his guarantee. And in 1975, if you were making 200, as far as I'm concerned, if I make 250000 right now, I'm making a lot of money. Sure. But in 75, yeah. yeah. that was a huge salary. You know, in, in, comparisons the 250 back then is probably uh, a million and a half now i don't know i'm just using it so keep it in that perspective but nick had a guarantee a lot of times his opponent may have to be one of those guys that's getting a percentage of the gate or based on the house that particular night but generally speaking most of the guys knew what they could make with a fair amount of guess and they may be paid a little bit differently, certain guys. Some of the preliminary guys, take a TV guy, Jobber. He'd come in, work TV. He'd get paid his 150 bucks, go home. I that just, was it. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I nope. just looked it up. The uh, official inflation calculator on the U.S. Yeah. Bureau of Labor Statistics, 250000 in 1975 is $1.4 million today. And I said about a million and a half. So yeah, you were you were very close. We're right. You know, I was kind of thinking that's about the way it is. Must be that old banking mind. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, Nick knew that that's what he could make by staying in the AWA. Now I don't know if you want to just go off track a little bit with Nick and his salary, but I think this puts it into perspective. A lot of these guys, as I said, were independent contractors. So. When Nick was AWA champion, in the NWA, Harley Race in 1977 was the NWA champion. Harley Race was making about the same amount of money, $250,000. Does 
That's what the promised champion guarantee was at that point. Now, again, sometimes he made more, but that was his salary. Nick was offered from Fritz von Erich, who was at the time the NWA president, Jack Adkison, he was under his real name. And he offered Nick, he wanted Nick to take and become the NWA champion. And Nick, and he told me this, guys, right on my deck one summer day when he was at the house back here in 1996. He was telling me this story. And he says what happened was is that he'd been with Vern, you know, for all those years. He knew what he got, what he had in front of him, what he could make. His travel schedule at the time as champion, he would work maybe four or five nights a week, most of the time just four. So you got three nights that are free. And a lot of times he'd have a week off here and there where he could just not wrestle. The NWA schedule, Harley Race at the time, was wrestling 380 times a year. Now you stop and you hold your head and you go, whoa, wait a minute, there's only 365 days in the year. Well, some of those shows were an afternoon, a matinee show, and then he'd have to get in his car or fly somewhere for an evening, you know, uh, nine or 10 o'clock spot in some town. And that was Harley's schedule. And he was working every night of the year with no time off and a much tougher uh, travel schedule. He'd be in Japan. He'd have to fly in, wrestle in Texas, then go back into Canada, you know, then maybe down to Florida. I mean, Harley was all over, any NWA champion, but Harley was all over. And Harley was making about 250000 a year. And Nick says, all I had to do was take out my pen, put it to paper real quick and say, I'm losing money if I go work for the NWA. Because also, a lot of the travel that Harley did, a lot of times that was paid out of pocket. And so Nick says, I had the perfect utopia working for Vern. And even though I could have made the same as NWA champion, maybe been a little more widely recognized, I was taking a, a pay cut. Your turn. That's No, it's it's no, crazy, it's to, crazy think, to think, you know, because you know, how many times, times Benny, Benny, through the years have we had people on the shows that talked about every day, wrestled every day, twice on Sundays? Well, and I'll tell you what, there's a famous, there's a famous Nick Bockwinkle, Paul Bosch, Houston, Texas story. There was one of the cards, I don't know the exact, it was in 76, Harley, or 77, whatever year it was, Harley was the champion, the NWA champion, he was scheduled for a title match on the card, I believe it was against Harry Funk, without looking, and on the middle card, it was such a big card at the Summit, the big arena in Houston at the time, where Paul Bosch had brought in Bruno San Martino for a card, I think Bruno wrestled uh, Mike York, the Alaskan, and Nick Bockwinkle was brought in, AWA champion, but he was in an undercard match, and he was scheduled to wrestle Jose Lothario. And Nick went to a 30-minute draw with Lothario. Then they're waiting for the main event between Race and Funk, and Race doesn't show up. Race isn't there. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? <coughs> so Paul Bosch went to Nick. Last minute, you know, program subject to change, those words at the top of every oh, yeah. lineup sheet. 
And he said, Nick, I need a favor. Can you go out? We'll make it an AWA title match. Is this okay with Vern? Vern, Vern had blessings. Fine, go ahead. You're not going to lose the title. He wrestled Terry Funk for a whole hour. They went to an hour Broadway. So Nick had wrestled an hour and a half. He got a good payday that night. Now, here's what happened. Harley had wrestled an afternoon card somewhere else. And he thought that the evening card was at a different time. This was his story. And he didn't show up for it. Paul Bosch was livid because this was the second time this type of thing had happened with Harley and where he had been late for a date or missed a date. And Paul Bosch just said, that's it. He worked out a deal with Vern that Nick would come in and work for his cards here and there as AWA world champion. And he recognized the AWA title after Paul basically pulled out of the NWA. It wasn't Harley's fault. Harley was Harley race. God bless that man. He had to be dead dog tired from from the travel schedule and the time changes. You know, I mean, you go from you go from Australia to to St. Louis, you got a 15 hour time difference. And crazy. That was one of the. uh, What's uh, what's the word? Creative creative narrative. You know, fluff that Hulk Hogan Hogan used to add to his own stories, stories. where he talked about traveling. (coughs) That that because of the time zone differences, he actually wrestled 370 days a year. Yeah. Well, it was just like before we went on the air tonight. I asked you. I said, "What time is it that we're doing this?" Because I was thinking seven o'clock, and you said seven o'clock, but it's actually six o'clock for me. So I was a Harley race here. Good thing you caught me. I don't know, showed. There you go. You know, that time change, it'll get you every time. Think about 15-hour difference. Holy crap. Well, you, you think that's bad. I'm running out of excuses for the uh, for for Benny's envelope to keep being as light as it is. I can, I can, only, I can only point to the small crowd so many times. You're going to start making a paper airplane out of it. <laughs> what, that, 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 that check has been in the mail every week for oh, 10 yeah. years. You know, that's a famous line I always heard in the banking area when I had to go collect. They'd always oh, yeah. tell me it was in the mail. I mailed it to you last week. You should have it by now. It's in the mail. It's in the mail. <laughs> I, I got And I got to tell you a funny story. Okay, this is off wrestling, but it's in the mail. I had to, we used to call people for their payments if they were six, 30, 60 days late. You know, we're concerned. We got to work out arrangements, you know, and all, all this. Called this one guy. It's always in the mail. Finally, I called him. I said, man, we've had enough of this. We got to get this straightened out. We always heard the famous line, you can't get blood from a turnip. That seemed to be the standard line, you know. Well, after I put this guy through the ringer and said, we're going to work something out, he said to me on the phone, and I, I burst out laughing when he said it. He says, what do you want me to do, man? You want me to shit money? Can you shit money? I can't. <laughs> and I told him, I said, well, you just come up with a new one. I'm going to give you an A for creativity, but now we still need to talk about your payment. Okay, enough <laughs> of that. Can you well, shit money? Well, you know I go, can't. Going back to uh, – Back to money, we, we talked about 
to travel and and territories. But I want to talk about transportation for a little bit. I'm assuming transportation was something the wrestlers, you know, you, you talk about the independent contractors they figured out between themselves. We've heard some stories from the guys we've had on and girls we've had on about you know, food, hotel, etc. Um, going back to our our wonderful hypothetical uh, Burhead Jones. As a driver and a passenger, he's in Minneapolis, he's working for Vern in the AWA, and he's got a gig coming up in Green Bay. Back in the territory days, how does a, how does a guy who's working in the AWA, how does he get from Minneapolis to Green Bay? Uh, do, they, do they travel together? Is it 10 people to a car? sleeping? How do they do that? Well, it's very simple. Yeah, sometimes it was. It was maybe 10 people to a car, but um, the, Jimmy Brunzel tells the story about how they would all pool their money together. Someone would drive. He said someone would have a big Oldsmobile 98, you know, Oldsmobile 98 back in the day was the, the lead of Oldsmobiles. And he said they'd have this big old hunk in Olds 98 and we'd all pay and ship in for gas. The funny thing is, is, you know, back 40, 50 years ago, I mean, gas was cheap. But in comparison, again, to today's dollars, if you did your whatever that was you did before with your million dollar uh, calculation, uh, it was expensive. And so Burhead's got to go to Green Bay and he's going to be he knows probably what he's going to make on the card. He gets two or three, four, five guys. Come on, ride with me. And they all chip in on the gas. And they also, you know, a lot of these guys. Yeah, they could be promised what they were going to make, but many times they would be responsible for their hotel or definitely their transportation there. And you got to put that into the equation too. So were they really making 100000 a year or were they making 60000 because they were paying out hotels and food and, you know, it's like anything else, um, you know. I worked for a bank. They paid me a salary. Well, they're not responsible for anything else. They're only responsible for paying me. Now I have to feed myself. I have to take care of everything else. So I hope that answers your question. They well, they did pool their thoughts, their their money, and make it as easy as they could. Let me let me ask you. We had uh, you know, we we've had some story. I want to kind of expand on that for a second. We've had a bunch of stories about travel and and time and everything. Um, you know, when you're talking about the, the independent contractor status, so part of the agreement, Hey, I'm in Minneapolis. Uh, I, I, I get off the phone with it with somebody. They want me working in green Bay. They're going to give me, I'm just throwing out random numbers. They're going to pay me, you know, 10 grand for the weekend or whatever. Is, is that, is that part of it? Like the promoters offer, Hey, I know he's got to drive from Minneapolis or is it everybody gets 10 grand. I don't give a shit if you're coming from, from five miles away or, or you're on the other side of the continent. The reality of it was, is that every wrestler on a card was in most cases paid differently, paid a, a different amount, whether it be a percentage of the gate, depending on what your level was on the card. You know, obviously the main event guys are going to get the biggest portion you got to figure the promoter's cut to that as well because he's got expenses to pay. You know, he's renting an arena. He's, you know, paying all the bills. So, but with the the wrestlers, they are going to take that money 
and whatever amount it was and do the best they can with it. If he gets a call, and, and they're not going to just get a call and say, can you come here tonight? In most promotions, the wrestlers would maybe, some of them were different. You know, some would be a weekly basis. Some would be on a monthly basis. But they would get a sheet, a promoter sheet or a booking sheet. And the wrestler would have the whole list of his dates, whatever they were, and what city they were in. So he knew. He knew where he had to be, what time he had to be there. So if he was in Minneapolis tonight and tomorrow night at, or tomorrow at noon, he has to be in Green Bay, it's up to him to figure out how to get there. And he knows what he's probably going to make when he gets there. But they all had a booking sheet in the territory. It wasn't like the promoter just called you in every day and said, hey, guess what? You're going here, buddy, you know, and you're going to this town. They had a booking sheet. A lot of wrestlers, you mentioned uh, Cornette saving his booking sheets. You know, um, I know Jim Brunzel, I know I just mentioned him, but Jim Brunzel kept his, I believe, where he can tell you where he was on any given day, you know, during his working career. And uh, some of them would even record their paydays and things like that in there. But they always knew where they were going. It, it wasn't a surprise to them. Now, the only other thing was is, generally speaking, promoters ask this much respect. And it's it's kind of works like in the real world. I could go into work today and they could decide they don't need me and release me. But in the old days, you know, promoters like any business would say, I want you to give me two weeks notice. If you're going to leave, I'd like to have two weeks notice. Or I'd like you to finish out your commitments where we got a program, you know, maybe two, three cards here where you're in them and you're a, a fixture in the card. We'd like you to finish that and then you can go finish out your, your commitments here. And most of the time, that's the way it worked. I mean, it was it was very seldom what a promoter just would say, hey, screw you, I'm out of here. Well, if he did, depends on where he was on the card. Sometimes it didn't matter. The fans didn't know he was gone because they don't mention him anymore. And fans had, you know, the, the, memory, the, the memory span of a gnat sometimes. So they didn't even remember that Burhan Jones had been here because they're busy being entertained by new uh, characters. A, a good example, when Hulk Hogan was working with the AWA, and this takes us right into this crucial expansion. Hulk is working for Vern Gagne, and he's got all these commitments. He's got his booking sheet. Hulk is in Japan. That was part of the deal with Vern, too. We're not going to talk about the the, uh, the the argument they had behind the scenes about selling T-shirts or whatever. But Hogan knew he had to be in Minneapolis. Vince McMahon got a hold of him and said, don't go. Vince and Hogan had talked out. And this is when this real paper contract and things like that started to come into place. He says, Hulk, I want you to come and work for me. You're done with Vern. And Hogan basically walked out on his commitments. Greg Gagne got on the phone with Hulk. And he, he said, what's going on? He said, man, we cut, you know, they used to do shows. They'd, they, they'd tape the wrestling shows four or five, six weeks out. So you'd start an angle and then you'd have the remaining weeks already filmed and sent to the various cities. And Hogan says, I'm, I'm not coming. I'm, I'm done, Vince. I'm going to work for Vince. And Greg says, hey, man, come in and fulfill your commitments, your, your contracts. And then if you want to go, go. But 
don't do that. Hulk just basically said, screw you, buddy, and he left. That's the, the short story of it. Now, there's other stuff that was entertained that we could do a two-hour show on. But Hulk basically walked out on his, his contract. And Vern, yes, he was left holding the bag. Because now on all his next three, four weeks of cards, maybe five weeks, he's got to explain why Hulk Hogan isn't there. And I will add that uh, David Schultz did the same thing. He left that same way. Now, here's, here's a good side to this, a, a, a better side. Bobby Heenan was contacted by Vince McMahon to go work with him. Hulk was excited about that. He wanted Bobby to come. Hogan, or I'm uh, sorry, Heenan went to Vern. He told him that he was going to leave that he'd been contacted, that he was going to make more money. Even asked Vern, Can you, will you pay me the money? Vern, at that point, couldn't give him the yes answer or exactly what he wanted. And Bobby said, well, fine, I'm going to leave. And he says, I will fulfill my commitments, whatever his contract dates were. And he said, and then I am going to leave. And he did. Now, who was the classier guy? Definitely. Now, the other side of it is... Right. Vince McMahon started paying guys. This is a lot of people don't want to ever hear this, but it's fact. He would start paying guys in various territories to not show up. Paying them to stay home and let the promoter die on the vine. That's how this whole promotional thing went down, this invasion and the, the national expansion. Junkyard Dog, Ted DiBiase, the Von Erichs. Pafo, uh, Randy, so many others, the Freebirds, Hulk Hogan, Jesse Ventura, all of these guys, many of them were paid to just no show their promotion that they were in. You wonder why some of these promotions went down faster than others? You can't start breaking promises to your fans on a regular basis. You can't go to pay see, to see Hulk Hogan and, uh, you know, get some lesser talent put in at the last minute and um then it got a little trickier than that too because uh mcmahon was actually paying some of the arenas to not rent out to that promotion in this case Vern Gagne, and rent i'll pay you not to rent to him and i'll pay you to rent to me vince put money out like crazy so that 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 expansion thing you know it's it is what it is, but it changed the business in a way that uh, none of I don't think anybody could have ever seen it, that it would have worked, but it has. Your time. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking that like the, the Bobby Fisher bar Spassky chess match. You hit the you hit the button when you're done talking, and then the next guy has 45 seconds to make the move. So, well. If you if you want me to shut up, just tell me to shut no, up. No, 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 no. So uh, th this question is both financial, but it's a little bit more too. So there's been a, a lot of rumors circulating, more than rumors, I think, that WWE is pushing to have gambling on match match outcomes legalized. What effect do you think this has on professional wrestling? <laughs> well, I've seen. I've seen a couple of little quips about it, and then when you brought it up now, I, um, I, I 
I'm not sure. I don't believe it. But then I've learned to not doubt anything Vince McMahon does. So I don't know how you could work it, Benny. Right. Um, We're talking about a sport that has admitted that it's not real, that it's entertainment, that it's predetermined. The finishes are uh, predecided. I guess it would be up to the crazy people that want to place a bet and figure out if they can read Vince McMahon's mind as to how he's going to book or all his team of writers, you know, what they're going to do. And then what are they going to do? Then swerve them or what? I mean, somehow it, it betting and something on a, on a predetermined thing. I, I don't know how you, I don't know how you do it. It's interesting. The whole theory. I think we'd have to both revisit that. But if a fan was dumb enough to put money down on a, uh, a betting, how a finish was going to be, I don't know. I would imagine. Uh, to me, there, to me, there's got to be some behind-the-scenes playing with numbers. That I, I was going to say, I would imagine that that you'd have to play it close to the chest. In that, you know, uh, I could I can go on any of the dirt sheet sites and tell you what the you know odds are for WrestleMania matches they haven't even announced yet. And so, I mean, I can't imagine how you control. Especially with with uh, Benny, we've talked about it with the scripts of everything being overly scripted today. How do you have a writer's room full of people pitching ideas and and writing a script for a show when you're not allowed to tell anyone how it ends? So do they do they build the match and then Vince is is it gorilla by himself telling the wrestlers on their way to the ring who's winning tonight? Well, when do you give the finish to the wrestler? I mean. Do they get it like, you know, WrestleMania that they get it an hour beforehand? And how does that affect the quality of the match? Because they don't have any time to put a match together. Yeah. What, what do you what do you think, George? Well, like I say, I just don't know how you you orchestrate it. I think at this point, um, I just the other day I saw the first little thing on. I think it was Facebook talking about that Vince is looking to you know, institute, try to institute betting on matches. Um, I I guess it could be done, guys. There's no doubt you can bet on anything. I mean, you can you can bet on, you know, in a dog race, you can bet on which one's going to take a dump before he gets to the, to the starting gate. You know, I mean, you can do anything you want. But on a predetermined thing, somehow there's got to be some fixing behind the scenes that's going to make, make it lucrative for for Vince McMahon to be the winner in the thing. I, I don't know. I think that's something we need to see how it unfolds. Is that fair, Benny? Yeah. I, I don't know how you do it. My own personal opinion is if you're betting on a wrestling match, you're really circling the drain. I, that's just my opinion. There you go. There you go. You're going down the toilet, man. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, I, if anybody out there uh, – I'll, have, I'll put Benny in charge of it. We can bet what country we chart in next. Uh, three to one odds. It's a uh, it's a country with at least seventeen consonants. Myanmar. <laughs> I'm, I'm 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 holding out. I'm holding out that Apple will finally chart us in Uzbekistan. But yeah. 
Well, George, we, we talked a lot tonight, money. We always have a great time having you on. You're very knowledgeable, and we kept going back to Minnesota. That's your 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 uh, bread and butter. But before we let you go, uh, one, do you have anything coming up, and where can people find uh, George Shire? Well, I am on Facebook, a uh, couple wrestling pages. I have George Shire's Wrestling Time Machine, which is basically – all old school wrestling, 1990 going backwards. If you want to come on and talk about today's stuff, we don't need you. If you want the old stuff, it's the good place to go because it's from any territory everywhere. And i got a lot of people that uh, share things. I share a lot from my collection and obviously the knowledge and stuff we can share. And then also um, I am uh, on the AWA American Wrestling Association and that's what it's called, AWA American Wrestling Association Fan Club page. So if you're not on those pages, and of course that would be just AWA, but if you're not on those pages, go to them, send a join uh, request, and we'll get you on. And then the other thing is, is I do, obviously, I've, I'm doing a podcast again tomorrow. I'm having fun doing podcasts, yours, few others I enjoy doing. Um, it's, it's what I like doing best. And I'm doing bumps and thumps. We're going to tape one tomorrow. That's a very good one. I love I love it. Um, Brian always does a good job there. And then I, I actually, I, I do things in locally. Um, I have the Minnesota, or not the Minnesota, the Washington County Historical Society. I go a couple times, three times a year and, and do talks on old school wrestling. Nice. Believe it or not, people actually come to this thing and... My books are there, Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling and the other three results books. Um, I usually, in those instances, I whatever I sell, I donate to the Historical Society. So it's a donation. Exactly. But um, that's I got I got one of those dates coming up down the road here. So that's what I do. I keep busy that way. And I'm always working on results and chrono, chronalizing territories and things. So when I get a chance to talk like you guys let me do, well, we got a, a new man on the team here. Running. It was a schmoz. There you right. go. Wow. Wow. But I love your show. You guys do a good job. And I know I talk a lot sometimes, but I'm told that people enjoy hearing what I offer. And as, as long as they do that, I'm okay. You know, the people you want me to shut up, Mercy shut Baku. Up. Mercy Baku. That's what uh, Rene Goulet used to say. When uh, yes. Came. So. But well, thank you very much. Absolutely, very well. George. It's always a pleasure having you. Uh, you heard him, time, uh, George's Time Machine. Uh, is it your uh, last, time, last time we had you on? Your book was still available on Amazon. Yes, uh, Amazon.com, any bookstore. It is in Barnes & Noble. And um, it's doing well. I still get a little check in the mail here and there. So life is good. Very nice. Good, good book. So yeah, any anywhere books can books are sold. Uh, like, like you said, your your wrestling time machine, Minnesota. So for George Shire, for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spastiano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. <laughs>